Hello and welcome to The Silver King's War. I'm Michael Sievers, the writer, producer, and creator of this podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. Today we will conclude the final play in the trilogy, The Silverfields of Northbrook. This play is entitled The Sievers. The play concludes with scene five, which is entitled Rockford. It's the summer of 1960. Stanley Silverfield began selling wholesale beauty supply products for his Uncle Abe's company, Bailey's Beauty Supplies, not long after the family moved to Northbrook. It was a timely change for the family's fortunes. Stanley was an exceptional salesman on his suburban route of hair salons and barbershops. This scene is the Silverfield's kitchen on a 1960 summer afternoon. Stanley and Shirley are talking with Michael and Cindy about an important decision. What's about to happen will boost the family's financial fortune and shred its connective fabric. The family will move north to Rockford, Illinois in October of 1960 as Stanley takes a big promotion with a new territory and the promise of managing a modern Bailey's wholesale beauty supply store. Within months of this scene, the Silverfields of Northbrook will become the Seavers of Rockford. Stanley Shirley, Hyman Krause, and Abe Bailey agreed on the name change to shield the family from the Rockford region's history of anti-Semitism. They selected Roy Seavers, a slugging first baseman for the Chicago White Sox, as their imaginary namesake. A Northside family rooted in West Aldine and Greg Road off Lake Michigan is now faced with the uncertainty of wearing what was known historically as the pale hose. As the scene opens, Michael is listening intently at the kitchen table, and as the words spill from his father's lips, he bursts into tears and crashes through the kitchen door into the yard. His life and the family's life will change in devastating and fatal ways. Cindy, a precocious nine, understood that the family will leave Northbrook. Rockford was a new word and world. The Rockford years allowed Michael to attend the University of Wisconsin in Madison. The family's improved finances supported his education as his Lowell Hall career from pots and pans to the last head waiter covered his meals and extensive social life throughout five years. Cindy, the family's beautiful swimmer, sank beneath the relentless waves of social pressure. As the scene opens, Michael steps beneath a single shadow-cast light to read his letter to the Stearns. Dear Aunt Lucille and Uncle Lester, I am so sad. Dad and Mom told us we're leaving Northbrook in October. Dad got a promotion and a big new sales territory in Rockford. But where's Rockford? I have no idea. I don't know what else to write, so I will close. I love you, Michael. As 
This scene converts and the full stage lights come up. The Silverfields enter the kitchen to sit around the table on a weekend afternoon. And Stanley begins. Michael, Cindy, where are you? Mom and I want to talk with you. And Michael from downstairs. I'm downstairs, Dad. I'll be up in a minute. Cindy, just around the corner in the dining room, weighs in with, Okay, Daddy, what's new? And Shirley, Kids, are you hungry? How about a snack? Michael, Sure, Mom. Pretzels and Cindy, Really? Again, Michael? You need new snacks. Got any Fig Newtons, Mom? We sure do. How about some milk? That's fine with me, Mom. I'm not sure about Michael. What's on your mind, Dad? Michael queries. I will cut the grass this afternoon. I was oiling my glove. And Stanley, your mom and I have important news. We are moving this fall. I got a big job promotion with Bailey's, and it means we'll move to Rockford. And Michael, shocked, shouting almost, but Dad, where's Rockford? As the scene goes dark, Michael steps beneath a single light to read his final letter to the Stearns. And he struggles through tears to convey a 12-year-old's restless uncertainty, his fear of the future, and his loss of the true love that Northbrook became. And he begins, Dear Aunt Lucille and Uncle Lester, I am in shock. It's official. We're selling the Greg Road house. No more backyard football games. The move means we'll have a new name. We, the Silverfields, will become the Seavers as we arrive in Rockford. I know there are people who don't like Jews, but I don't want to change my name. I'm proud to be a Silverfield. I cried when Dad and Mom told us. Cindy, understandably, is confused about our future. Me too. I don't want to leave Greg Road. I love you, Michael. As Michael concludes his letter, the stage lights dim and then go dark. And this is the end of scene five in The Seavers. This scene is entitled Rockford. After a few moments of darkness, the stage light comes up again and Michael reappears, this time in his Northbrook Little League uniform for Culligan Softwater. His tears drying, he's sharing a bit of Rockford's history with the audience. Michael begins, Rockford was settled around 1835 from citizens who came from Galena and settled in on the west bank of the Rock River. Halfway between Chicago and Galena, the community was known briefly as Midway, but quickly became Rockford because of the excellent ford that allowed people to cross the Rock River. The settlement was incorporated as a village in 1839 and then chartered as a city in 1852. Between 1890 and 1930, the city had three daily papers. The earliest settlers were from New York State and New England, 
but the city early on acquired a modest cosmopolitan character. Large numbers of Irish-born immigrants arrived in the 1850s, and then Swedish immigrants in the mid-50s. And after the Civil War, Swedes began to arrive in large numbers and became the largest ethnic group in Rockford. They settled on the east side and in areas along 7th Street and Kishwaukee Avenue, and the Swedish language was as common as English as late as the 1920s. In 1851, the Rockford Water Power Company was organized, and in 52, the Galena and Chicago Union Railroad reached the city, and by 1860, Rockford had become a significant industrial center noted for production of the John Manny Reaper and other agricultural machinery. Before the Civil War, Rockford was the center of strong anti-slavery activity. And after the Civil War, an important civil rights case from Rockford was decided by the Illinois Supreme Court. It was Chicago and Northwestern Railroad versus Anna Williams in 1871. The decision supported African Americans' rights to unhindered use of public transportation, but was decided on narrow legal grounds and cited in support of what became the separate but equal doctrine established by the United States Supreme Court in Plessy v. Ferguson in 1896. In the 1880s, the furniture industry began to grow, and that industry was using the talents of Swedish craftsmen and capitalists. And in the first half of the 20th century, Rockford was the second largest furniture manufacturing center in the United States. Many of these companies were cooperatives, reflecting a different business model from that of the old Yankee entrepreneurs, with laborers and craftsmen holding significant power. Rockford was hit hard during the First World War, and the agricultural implement industry began to decline, and the furniture industry was also damaged by the Great Depression and struggled in the Second World War. Rockford's 20th century industry revolved around machine tools, heavy machinery, automotive aerospace, and fastener and cabinet hardware products, and packaging devices and ideas. Michael concludes his brief history research on Rockford, Illinois, with some information about baseball. In the six years following the Civil War, Rockford became nationally known in baseball circles with the remarkable success of the Forest City Baseball Club. Led by Albert Spaulding as a pitcher and Ross Barnes in the infield, the team became a prominent Western club and joined the first professional baseball league, the National Association, in 1871. Both those stars were hired by Boston after the 1870 season. Rockford was a member of the Northwest League, which was the first minor league in 1879, and in the ensuing decades often had a minor league club. And most significantly, during the existence of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League from 1944 to 1954, Rockford supported its peaches, 
the team that was featured in the 1992 movie A League of Their Own. And now, as the stage lights dim for the final time, Michael stands before the audience, proudly in his Northbrook Little League uniform, with his glove on his right hand as he grips a Little League baseball in his left. And he's about to pretend for the final time as a Northbrook baseball player that he can become Sandy Koufax. And as Michael chases his Koufax dreams, we have reached the conclusion of the final play in the trilogy, The Silverfields of Northbrook. And this play is entitled The Seavers. And you are listening to The Silver King's War. <laughs> 